Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Great. Happy Father's Day once again. And uh, my name is Dwayne, one of the pastors here at the district. And so, again, just welcome to the district. If this is one of your first Sundays joining us, uh, if you are joining us, go ahead and grab your Bible. We're going to be in Hebrews 9 and 10 today. Hebrews 9 and 10. And uh, what we're doing right now is we're walking through a series called Christian Story, Christian Belief, and Christian Formation. And uh, are you going to dismiss kids? Yes. So if you are three and older... Uh, kids in here, we have a big class for you today uh, to go learn about Jesus. And so those kids can be dismissed and, and head out, uh, follow Pastor Josh back there. Pastor Josh, it's funny. Uh, anyways, follow Josh back there and uh, head out. Hebrews 9 and 10. We are in a series, Christian Story, Christian Belief, and Christian Formation. And really our goal for this series is for you to be able to take uh, really just a, an elevator pitch. If you were to look at the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, what is the story that God is ultimately revealing to us through the 66 books of the Bible? What is He telling us? And then what are we to believe about what He is telling us? And then ultimately, how does that then inform our lives? How does that transform us? How does that make us more like Jesus on a daily basis, because that's the goal. That's why we're here in this room, is to simply become more like Jesus. If you're here for any other reason other than becoming more like Jesus, then I can give you a thousand different things to do uh, than come to church. And so we're here because it's all about Jesus, and that was really what we looked at last week. As we now move into that third bucket and so really what I mean by buckets are there's four kind of buckets of how all of Scripture can be categorized in the way in which God is revealing His story. And the first big bucket is creation. God, in the beginning, created everything. Heavens and the earth and everything that inhabits the heavens and the earth. And He created it good because He is good. And we looked at what all that creation entails. And then we moved on to the second bucket, which is the fall of creation. And we looked at just Adam and Eve, our first parents, and how they disobeyed God and thus ushered in sin into the world. And what that sin did was fractured everything. The relationship between man and woman, the relationship between fam family, the relationship between uh, one another, the relationship that we have to creation, creation fractured, the relationship of the animal kingdom, anything and everything you could possibly think of fractured and broke. And because of that, that's why we experience all the turmoil and the hostility and the uh, uh, suffering in the world and the pain in the world and why bad things happen. All of that is because of the fall. And there's not a person in here that would disagree with me in the fact of saying this. It's all messed up. Everything in the world's messed up. Like everything in the world's broken to some degree. And so it doesn't matter if you had a Buddhist background or grew up Christian or had a Catholic background or were Muslim or no friends who are or at least come to an agreement that things are messed up, that there's brokenness in the world, that there's evil in the world, that bad things happen. And so that's what that second bucket was, was determining why the fact bad things happen. 
both to you and by you. And so that was because sin entered the world. Through our disobedience, sin entered into the world. And then we started into the third bucket. What does God do? Not in response to sin entering into the world, but his plan all along. Because he wasn't shocked by it. We do not serve a reactionary God. We do not serve a God who is always following the ambulance. We serve a God who knew what was going to happen and had a plan from the very beginning of how he was going to fix what we broke. And so we looked at last week, what is the Bible teaching us? What is the Bible telling us in revealing the story of God's redemptive plan? And as we started walking through Genesis, really to Malachi, of the entire Old Testament and how it parallels ultimately the life of Jesus Christ. And one of the beautiful things is that you see these these incredible parallels between the people of God, the Israelites, who God gave his law and gave his options or or opportunities of sacrifices, gave his rituals, gave his um, uh, uh, ceremonies, gave all these things in order for them to be a light unto the world. But yet they were not to be the ultimate light of the world. They were not actually going to be the city on a hill. They were not going to be the hope for humanity. Rather, they were just a shadow. They were a type of Christ that would actually allow them to see Christ when he came and for us to not miss him. And so literally, you could, you could just walk through the story of the Israelites. The fact that they were held in captivity in Egypt and that they were in bondage there. And when they were freed from that captivity of Egypt, walking through the Red Sea, you see that parallel with Jesus coming out of Egypt and literally going through his own baptism. And then coming out of his baptism, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And he's in the wilderness just like the Israelites are in the wilderness for 40 years. You can literally paint the picture and just walk through every story of the Israelites pointing to the fact where Jesus comes in and says, that's about me, that's about me, that's about me. And that's what we looked at last week is Jesus opening up the scrolls, as he says, to his disciples and saying everything that Moses taught and that the prophets taught and that the Psalms taught, everything, and and that's just his way of saying the entire Old Testament scriptures. For them, the entire law, the entire Old Covenant is really just me showing up today and fulfilling all that God commanded. All that he commanded. And so when it comes down to it, a simple question or equation that I can give you for the economics God uses when it comes to his creation is this. Obedience leads to life. Disobedience leads to death. Obedience lives to life. Disobedience comes about death. And all of our history has been disobedience. Plain and simple. Adam and Eve, disobedient. Their first children... Cain and Abel, disobedient. Cain killed Abel. And then it just continued to flow out from there. And so we needed something or someone to enter into our history to ultimately fix and redeem what we broke. To be able to come in and undo what we did in in our history. And so this is where we kind of now see not only does Christ 
come into the picture and become that Messiah for us, but what are we to believe about Jesus as he enters into our history? What are we to believe about him when it comes to the law? And when it comes to all of the rituals and the ceremonies, when it comes to sacrifices of the Old Testament? What are we to believe about him when it comes to him being a mediator or a high priest on our behalf? Because that's what the story unraveled for us last week. And so what I want to do today is show you how the New Testament writer of Hebrews just paints, just lays it out there for us. So there's going to be a lot of scripture reading for us today that is just the scriptures believe or telling us what to believe about the story that was unraveled last week. So as you're there in Hebrews 9, I'm going to pick it up in verses 11 through 14 as we walk through this. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's that third bucket we're talking about right now. How do we get to redemption? How do we get to something that purchases for us the right to be back into legal relationship with God? Because that's what the Israelites have been trying to figure out all along. How do we get back in right standing with God? How do we earn that? How do we follow that? What do we need to do in order to to accomplish that task and that goal? How do we follow the Ten Commandments perfectly? How do we find a perfect bull or goat or lamb that is without spot or blemish in order to provide for us the sacrifice that would once and for all forgive us of our sins? How do we do that? That's what they're striving for. And this is what Jesus is coming in and answering. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if that sanctify the perf- that sanctify the for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what he's getting at here is really what we've been talking about. That sin that we brought into the world, how do we get purification? How do we get the removal of those sins? How do we ultimately get to the place where we have a clean conscience? And what he's saying is the blood of, bull, of, of bulls and goats, sacrifices, obeying the law is not going to get you there. It's not going to get you there. You need someone who's able to abide by the law perfectly on your behalf. You need a perfect and good and right sacrifice on your behalf to be able to actually offer the blood that would forgive you of your sins and satisfy the wrath of God towards those sins. This is what he's getting after for us. Because again, there is no other middle of the road, straddling the fence, ideology out there that makes sense of what we are experiencing. It's got to be God who fixes the situation. It's got to be a perfect person come in to fix all of the imperfections that we've caused. It cannot be us striving our way through rituals, through ceremonies, through... And, and, and again, I come from a very southern culture 
of how to do church. And what I mean by that is they used to give out pins to people based on how often or, or what their attendance looked like at church. Like you only miss two Sundays, you get that pin for the year. Like it was this almost works-based situation in which you could earn your righteousness or earn your stars for how good of a Christian you were. And at the end of the day, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Like you just showing up to church does not make you a Christian. Just like you walking into a garage does not make you a car. It just doesn't happen that way. But yet we're trying to earn it in our own way. And what Jesus is saying here is that you can't purify yourself. You can't purify yourself. Someone else has to do it. And so therefore, anytime a sin occurs, death is necessary. Because for God to remain good, holy, and just, He cannot for any reason sweep it under the rug and say, it's okay, don't worry about it. There has to be. This is, this is God's economics. Again, obedience leads to life. Disobedience leads to death. That's just the way God set it up. If Adam and Eve would have been obedient, they would have experienced life and life abundantly. But through their disobedience, death entered into the world. And that's because that's the way God set it up. What did he say? If you disobey me, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. That's God's command. That's the way he set it up. There is no Christianity where it's about making bad people become good. It's about making dead people become alive. Because in our sin, that's what comes. Death. We are dead. And so Adam and Eve sin, and then because they are sinners... They can't procreate anything that is not also sinful. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That gets rid of any type of notion that we're born with some type of good in us in which we can choose to obey God or choose to do the right thing or choose to earn our way to God and be considered righteous. Like, there is no us coming to God saying, did you see what I did? Therefore, grant me forgiveness. Grant me righteousness. There is no coming to the table and saying, I believe in your son Jesus, but I also want to add my good works or my good prayers or my good studying or my good sacrifices in the Old Testament or my good tithing, or my good whatever it is, none of those things help plead your case at the cross when God is looking at you and saying what you deserve is to be on that cross. Nothing we bring to the table. The only thing we bring to our salvation, our redemption, is the sin that brings us there. Is the sin that reveals to us or shows us we need a Savior. We need something outside of ourselves that is greater than the blood of bulls and goats. That is greater than the high priests who are mediating for us or intercessing for us when it comes to offering prayers to the Lord. 
We need something greater than that. We need something greater than our works. And so for God to eventually forgive the world of their sins, to purify it, He instituted several wills, decrees, and commands in order for Him to set the stage for Jesus to come and fix it. For Jesus to come and solve the problem. One of the big orders God gives to His people is the law. The law. All right, and, and we walked through this. God gives the law. And he starts with Moses. He starts with the Ten Commandments. And he grants it to him. You want to be the light of the world? You want to live in obedience? Do these things. And then as he continues wandering throughout the wilderness, he gives more laws and he gives more commands to the point where it's over 600 laws for the people to follow. And if they were to follow them, that would be considered living righteously. But they're stiff-necked people. They're stubborn. They literally get to a point in the wilderness where they say, you know what? That slavery in Egypt, that looked pretty good. Like maybe we'll just go back to doing that rather than following our Lord, trusting in Him. Like how crazy is that? That sounds crazy, but yet there are even us at times who think, Man, that way that I used to live that was sinful, that sounds pretty good. Maybe I'll go back to that because just following the Lord can be difficult at times. We need a better way. We need someone who's able to come in with the laws that were given and live them out for us because we can't. And that's exactly what Jesus does. God gave the laws not because it was an opportunity for us to have a way out or for us to achieve righteousness. Because I think you've heard me say this before. Even if right now, in this moment, you were to say, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to devote every single day to not only learning and meditating on the laws of God, but exercising them, practicing them, working them out in my life so that I can earn righteousness, so that I can be considered perfect. And let's just say you go down that path and over the next 20 years, you've perfected it. And on that 20th year, third month of the year, 20th day, you walk through a day where you did not sin. Congratulations. You still have 20 years of a trail of days in which you sinned that you're still going to be held accountable for. And even on that day that you considerably went without sinning, it's still going to be stained with your sinfulness because you're a sinner. It's impossible for you to be perfect in and of yourself. There's only someone else who can be perfect on your behalf. And so God sends His Son, Jesus, born of woman, 100% man, to be the only man, literally the greater Adam. Adam, born. Well, born, created. Adam, created. Be perfect, Adam. Literally, obey me. Cultivate the garden. Name all the animals. Here's you a wife. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Obey me. Be perfect. 
and he's not. Jesus comes as the second Adam. Same command. Be perfect. You are a man. You are living under the law. The law literally is telling you to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus is. He is perfect. He literally lives his entire life and never sins. Never sins. And what that does for us and what we are to believe about this is that the command given to us to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect is then fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ to where He is perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. And then this brings in what we call imputation. God's perfection in Jesus Christ is then granted to those who trust in Him, who believe in Him. Because you can't do it. To be in relationship with God, you have to be perfect. We need Jesus. We need Jesus' life, His perfect life. Oftentimes people are always quick to run to the cross. Because Jesus died on the cross for you, you're able to have your sins forgiven. We still need the righteousness of Christ. We still need to understand that He lived a perfect life fulfilling every command of the law earning righteousness for us so that not only just so that but because of the fact that we can't earn it for ourselves he earns it for us on our behalf another thing that he fulfills about that old testament law that we are to believe in is that god established a sacrificial system for his people by which they would offer animals to be put to death in order to have their blood spilt covering their sins and if you are like a part of PETA, then I'm sorry. Like this is just not going to be something that you enjoy hearing. But this was instituted by God. That in order for sins to be forgiven, blood has to be spilt. Blood has to be spilt. And we even see that with Adam and Eve. The first thing they try to do to fix their sin is cover up their shame with leaves from a fig tree. And it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Because trying to earn it ourselves, trying to do it in our own way, is not going to be good enough under God's standard. He demands blood be shed anytime sin is, is caused. There, death has to be paid. That's his economics. That's his equation. And so the first thing that we see is that he clothed them with animal, with animal skins. Which means God offered the first sacrifice to temporarily and foreshadow the great sacrifice that would eventually come in the person of Jesus Christ. He himself sacrificed an animal and spilt blood in order to cover their sins temporarily. And then later through the law, this same system of sacrifice came through where, again, thank the Lord that we do not have to do this now. All right? We do not have a stone tablet out back that is, hey, everyone, make sure that you look out in your cattle and you try to find uh, whatever lamb or goat or bull that you can find that has no spot or blemish on it that's a certain amount of, of months old or days old that you're able to then bring. And, and you're literally going to bring it to Josh, myself, and Ransford, and we're going to listen to your sins that you've committed for that year 
And as you've poured out all of your sins, we're then going to hear those sins, go over and place those sins on that calf or bull or heifer, whatever it is. And we're going to pray that God would impute those sins onto that animal. We're then going to slay it and kill it and let it just bleed out. And as it's bleeding out, we're then praying that that spotless, without blemish animal that would be considered pure, that that would then be imputed to you for the next year. Because that's what the priests of the Old Testament were doing. And then, as they would would receive those offerings, they would then go into the temple, into the Holy of Holy, and plead for your case, intercede for you on God's behalf, or on your behalf, in order for God to purify you. That's the sacrificial system that God instituted, which again, never was going to work. Because they had to do it over and over and over and over. And what we're looking at here is not just, how can I clean your conscience for this weekend? How can I clean your conscience for this week? How can I purify, purify you for what you've done over the last year? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about eternity. Eternity. What can be offered that would satisfy God for eternity? Not just this year. And so these animals that are being offered were never the point. They were never the point. There was never going to be a perfected sacrificial system where they're trying to like crossbreed calves to be like, man, this one is just completely white and that's great. And so let's like sacrifice that now. Like we figured it out, Lord. Maybe this will satisfy you forever. Not going to work. They were meant to show that Jesus Christ, who came and perfectly obeyed the law perfectly fulfilled the entire commandments of God is considered the spotless, without blemish, Lamb of God. And that the only thing that would perfectly satisfy the wrath of God towards us as sinners would be a perfect offering of sacrifice to Him. A perfect blood spilt that is not stained by anything in creation that is fractured or sinful. Because again, even the animals, fractured. There was no perfect one to be offered. It had to be Jesus. And therefore, He becomes the perfect Lamb of God, offered at the cross of Jesus Christ, so that as God comes down and literally acting as the high priest on our behalf, takes all of the sins of the world and imputes them onto Jesus. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he who knew no sin, he was perfect, he was spotless, without blemish. For he who knew no sin, he became sin. All of your sins imputed to Jesus. So that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Having his righteousness then imputed to us. And that allows God through Christ, he becomes a mediator for us. He becomes that high priest who is taking these sacrifices and then interceding for us, pleading our case to God about why he should forgive us. Hebrews 9.15 says this, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under 
the first covenant. And that first covenant being the old covenant, the old law. Do this in order to be righteous. And if you don't do this, death must occur. That's the old covenant. Well, death must occur because of our sins. Jesus comes and fulfills that for us. And then I want you to see this as he enters in to plead our case. Going down to uh, verse 23 of Hebrews 9. Thus it was necessary for the copies. And what he means by copies are the priests and the sacrifices in the temple. The copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, not into temples. The temple wasn't even good enough for Christ to go in and offer himself there. There needed to be a greater temple for him to offer himself and enter into, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ is literally acting as your attorney before God the judge and is pleading your case, not annually, but once and for all. There's no probation period when it comes to God's grace. Zero. When it comes to the old practices, when it comes to the old sacrificial systems, God is literally putting us on probation every single year. Every single year. All right, I'm forgiving you this time because of this offering, this sacrifice, this burnt offering that you've given me. I'm forgiving you. But I'm still watching you and I'm still holding you accountable for the sins that you're going to commit tomorrow and the next day and the one after that. There is no ultimate clear conscience that you're going to experience over this next year. You're still going to be walking around, looking over your shoulder, watching my wrath as it is watching you. There will be judgment. That's the feeling that they're experiencing as they're walking through the Old Testament. And guess what? That is still the feeling that we have apart from Christ today. Everyone, again, I don't care what your posture is. Romans 1 is very clear. There is a judge, and there is creation, there is truth, and we have one thing to do. We either listen to that truth and obey it by trusting in Jesus Christ, or we suppress the truth and try to believe that it's not there. But yet there's this gnawing on our souls daily that we have broken God's commands, that we have been disobedient towards our Creator, and that we are ashamed. All of creation, all of humanity are feeling that to a certain degree. We can suppress it to the point of numbing the soul, but for the fact that we're still striving after perfection in technology, striving after perfection in the medical fields of trying to uh, create fountains of youth, just reveal the fact that we're suppressing the truth of the eternity that is placed. We know it. For those who are in Jesus, we can rest. We can rest because we know there's nothing that we have to earn. We can rest because we know that there's nothing that we have to sacrifice. Jesus earned it for us in his perfect life and he sacrificed himself at the cross and therefore he rose three days later guaranteeing for us a resurrection 
a glorified body, and a hope for our future. And we can rest in that because we do not have to earn it for ourselves. It continues on in verse 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ does not have to sacrifice himself repeatedly year after year. I was asked a question, and this was probably 12, 13 years ago, and it was a good question. How come Jesus doesn't have to be dead forever? If he's paying for the sins of the world and the sins of the world, the wages of sin is death. How come he doesn't have to be dead forever? Because his perfect death ultimately satisfied the wrath of God. Because it satisfied the wrath of God, no longer does death have to be a thing for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those outside of Christ Jesus will be paying death for eternity and it will be in the form of hell. And death doesn't have to be an annihilation. It doesn't have to be kind of how we perceive it where you exist and then no longer exist. Death is in the terms of separation from God or experiencing God's wrath for eternity. That's death. And that's why the gospel is so important as we get into the weeks ahead of sharing it with those who don't know who are not trusting in Jesus because there's only one of two options. They're experiencing the wrath of God for the rest of eternity or they're experiencing the grace of God for the rest of eternity. And it all hinges on the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All hinges on that. It does not hinge on them. It hinges on Jesus, whether or not they trust and believe Him for who He is. Even more, look at Hebrews 10 starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form, which is Jesus Christ, of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law can never make you perfect. The sacrifices in the Old Testament could never make anybody perfect. And we need to know that because what our bent is, is to try to make ourselves perfect. Even in Christ, we still try to make ourselves perfect. By how often we read the scriptures, how often we pray, how often we witness, how often we do the things of Christianity. We think those things make us perfect. It's not. They're a part of the equation but they're only a part of the equation in the sense that God is making us perfect through the response that we have to His salvation that He grants to us as a free gift. That response that He grants to us, that salvation that He grants to us causes us through gratitude and thankfulness that we have received from Him to dive into wanting to abide in Christ through Scripture reading and prayer. Those things do not keep your salvation. Just like works do not 
grant you salvation. Works do not keep your salvation. If there, if there wasn't anything you could do to earn it, there's nothing you can do to keep it. Christ is the one who earned it for you, grants it to you, and keeps it for you because He is the high priest who is interceding for us daily, weekly, yearly, and for eternity that this person is secure in me. That this person has trusted in me, believes in me, and I have granted to them righteousness. And because I have granted to them righteousness, they cannot fall away from that. You cannot undo the salvation that God has granted to you. Think about it in terms of Colossians 1, 15, where God says, I have transferred you out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Think about this. Two domains. Kingdom of the beloved Son and the domain of darkness. Who transferred us out of it? Did we find the exit? Did we find the ladder? Did we construct some kind of ability to get out of the domain of darkness? No. We did not confess enough sins to get ourselves out of it. We did not read and memorize enough scriptures to get out of it. We did not offer sacrifices to get out of it. We did not obey the law in order to get out of it. He transferred us from the domain of darkness. He stretched out his arm because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and imputed his righteousness and forgiveness to us and moved us from that kingdom to the next one. To undo that, would be to sever the arm of Jesus and say, you cannot take me to this kingdom. I'm going to take myself back to the domain of darkness. That's crazy to think that I can undo, that I can be greater than Jesus Christ and what He's offered for me. What He's done in saving me. What He's done in rescuing me. And for those who, who are true believers who have seen Him, experienced Him, and received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, never would you want to. Never would you want to. It cannot make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? What he's basically saying is, if the law, if the sacrifices could have saved you, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? If we could attain it, why Jesus? Why Jesus? Would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus then becomes the redemption for us, as we see in verses 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus is coming in to say, God, you've taken no pleasure in what they've tried to earn themselves. I've come to do your will, to fulfill it by myself, 
I don't need any help. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. He's done away with, literally saying, you are to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. You are to offer sacrifices weekly, daily, yearly on behalf and just spread the blood of bulls and goats. I'm doing away with that because I'm offering my life as the perfect option. I'm offering my life as the perfect sacrifice. I'm ushering in a new covenant. A new covenant. We see this in verses 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he then sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That command to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is still in existence. Him saying, I'm, I'm doing away with one covenant and ushering in a new does not mean that that, new, or that old covenant is not still in existence. We are not born to say, uh, you, should, you shouldn't be perfect. We're still under that covenant of you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The difference here is that this new covenant that is ushered in is Jesus coming to us and declaring the good news. You are to be perfect, but you can't be. I'm here to do it for you. Trust in me and I will usher you into a better covenant. One in which you do not have to live under the shame and guilt of your imperfections, but one in which you can live under my perfection and rest in there because there's nothing for you to do. There's literally nothing for you to accomplish in your own salvation. I am perfecting you. I am sanctifying you. For by a single offering through the life of Jesus, he has perfected you. You don't need anything else. You don't need anything else other than Jesus himself. Therefore, there's now no need for trying to do the law to earn God's favor. There's no need for the offering of sacrifices of bulls and goats to temporarily atone for your sins. There's no need for priests to intercede for you on your behalf with prayers and supplication. There's no need for anything else because in Jesus, as he said on the cross, it is finished. It's finished. We need to believe that. That's all I'm asking for you to do today. This is the Christian belief. We are to believe Jesus on the cross when he says the work of fulfilling all of the old covenant is now done. I lived perfectly and now I'm the perfect sacrifice. All those copies and all those shadows, don't worry about them anymore. I accomplished it. Believe me and trust in me. This is literally Jesus Christ himself redeeming and becoming the second Adam. The second Adam. 
And I want you to see this in Romans 5, 15 through 19. Because there's still, again, just for whatever reason, there's still this desire in us where it's hard for us to receive a free gift, right? It's hard for us to receive a free gift. And he's trying to tell you it's a free gift. It's a free gift. Free. No cost to you. Free grace. Free gift. Romans 5, 15 through 19. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, talking about Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for the many. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That one sin from Adam brought condemnation to every single one of us. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The one obedience. So where one man's disobedience brought condemnation to everyone through one man's act of obedience brings about righteousness for everyone who was disobedient. Not for everyone who is obedient. It's not everyone who is earning it. It's for those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ, which is not a work. That's not a work. It's, it's faith. It's beyond you. It's outside of you. It's believing on the work of Jesus, not your own. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive, receive, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Remember what I mentioned in the beginning? Obedience leads to life. Disobedience leads to death. Obedience does live to life, but it's not your obedience that leads to life. It's the obedience of Christ imputed to you, granted to you, free gift that you receive that brings about life and life abundantly for you. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That is simply all we are to believe about the work of Jesus Christ in all of the Scriptures. Is that Adam sinned, through his disobedience. And then we ran to Noah. Noah still sinned through his disobedience. And then we ran to Abraham. Abraham, favored, considered righteous, still a sinner. Did not wait for his promised son. Took things into his own matter. Had a son out of wedlock with Ishmael. Disobedience. Through his son, Jacob, Jacob deceived his way into the birthright. Jacob's 12 sons, literally, Joseph, we don't like you. We're going to beat the mess out of you, leave you in a, like, it's just one after another. Hey, maybe this one will be better. Maybe this one will be better. Maybe this one will fix it. Maybe this one will do right. The sins of the father, happy Father's Day, become the sins of the sons. 
disobedience, disobedience. We needed one who could come and be that perfect obedience for us because we can't do it ourselves. And that's what we are to believe about Jesus. He nailed it. And because we didn't, he got nailed for it. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. He is the righteous one. Redemption is not your work to be done. Christ redeems you. Christ purchases you by his blood. Christ obeys the commands of God's law. Jesus offers his life as a sacrifice on the altar, not you. Jesus intercedes for you as a mediator, not pastors or priests or your parents. Christ is the chosen one. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Christ is your redemption and your salvation. You need nothing else. You need believe nothing else. And how do you receive this redemption? Repenting and believing. That's all the scriptures ask. Repenting and believing. John 3, 16. We know this. We know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish death, but would have eternal life. Would have eternal life. All we are asking is that if you don't believe in Jesus alone, Jesus alone. If you don't believe that, you're missing it. You're missing it. I heard an equation one time. Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus plus your daily Bible reading. Jesus plus uh, look at other streams of Christianity. Jesus plus priest. Jesus plus... Hail Mary's, Jesus plus Bible reading, Jesus plus witnessing, Jesus plus how often you attend church, Jesus plus any of those things is nothing if you think that is what earns your salvation. If you believe that, you're still living out the Old Testament law. And you're still disobeying. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Is everything. And that's what we need you to believe, to be redeemed. You're purchased by the blood of Jesus once and for all. Once and for all. And that has been God's plan all along. God is after his glory. And the only way he's going to get it is by exalting and glorifying his son Jesus. This is who I am well pleased with. This is my beloved son, Jesus. How do we get into that same receiving from God? This is what I'm pleased in, is when Jesus Christ becomes our identity. His perfection gets imputed to us, given to us, deposited into our account through belief in him. God then looks at us as he sees his son, Jesus, and he says, this is now my son or my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And when we get to that day, whether Jesus returns first or we die and go and see him, in that moment, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Good because of Jesus. Faithful because of Jesus. Servant because of Jesus. Not because of anything you did, but because of Jesus. Because he's there when we see the judge and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the judge and he's looking at us and he's saying, my blood was spilt for them. 
totally forgiven. They're righteous. Let them on in. That's the only way it happens. We need you to believe that. We need you to believe that. We want you to believe that so that you can treasure Jesus daily and nothing else, nothing else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you so much for your redemption through history. We thank you, God, that you have had a plan all along for us to be redeemed by you. For us to not have to try and be perfect ourselves, for us to not have to offer any sacrifices or spilt blood in order to forgive our sins. God, we, can't, we, we just could not do it perfectly. And so you took it into your own hands and you did it yourself. And we just thank you. That is an act of worship is for us to just be thankful and rejoice at what you have done. And as we come to this time where we remember the sacrifice of your son Jesus at the, t- at the table, at, th- at the supper of the lamb, we are remembering what he did in order to be the perfect sacrifice for us. We ask that this would be a refreshing time to fill up our hearts, to continue to purify our consciences once and for all, and to be filled up with gratitude that we don't have to do this on a daily basis, but Jesus offered himself once and for all. It's in Christ that we worship. It's in Christ that we believe. It's in Christ right now that we pray. Amen. As we come to this time of communion, again, Jesus at the cross is declaring it's finished because he is now participating in the act of all of those Old Testament rituals, all of those sacrifices. He is once and for all putting it to an end and saying, this is what God has demanded. This is what God has wanted. This is what God is taking pleasure in as he pours out his wrath on Jesus and Jesus breaks his body and sheds his blood for the removal and forgiveness of your sins once and for all. Once and for all. So that we can then be sanctified, purified, and declared righteous. Jesus instituted this Last Supper with his disciples because he knew they were going to need the reminder of this weekly, for sometimes daily, sometimes annually, just as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of what I've done for you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to kill yourself to remove your sins. He killed himself to remove our sins. And he wants us to remember that and to know that and to treasure that and to, and to, to find gratitude in that. And so that's what we're doing in this moment. And so if you don't have the wafer and the juice, you can go back to the table right now and get it and come back. And as the band comes forward, we're just going to take a time and we're going to worship the Lord. We're going to worship him through his sacrifice that he offered, purchasing you to be his people.
and for him to be our God. That's what he did. It was a great cost to him, and it was free for us. We need to remember that and worship him in this time. So go ahead. If you don't have the elements, you can go back and grab them. Come back to your seats and partake and worship Jesus in this time. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at